Hi, my name's Clayton, and you're listening to the Isaiah 43 podcast, where we explore how God has formed us, redeemed us, and how he calls us today. Each week, we will journey through scripture to understand all that God has done, and what exactly his call is for our lives today. This is week 50, an apologetics week, where we combat the world's lies with God's truth. First, I would like to say Happy New Year to you. I'm glad to see that you have joined us for another year's worth of the podcast. I hope that in 2024 we will have a lot of great discussions and projects and people coming to faith in Christ. This year I also want to explore some niche topics, things that perhaps you have wondered about but you really didn't know much about, such as next week's episode when we explore a little something that H.G. Wells is best known for, hint, hint. But, of course, we won't get far away from Scripture or what it teaches, and I want to spend some time on and in God's Word this year. More on all that in the coming weeks. For now, we have a topic to get to. This week, as I reflected on what we should discuss as our first topic of the new year, I tried to think of something impactful, something that would connect to this time of year. As I was praying, it dawned on me that people make all sorts of New Year's resolutions this time of year. Almost everyone will have some kind of goal they have for themselves this year, and despite that fact, statistically speaking, only 5% of people will keep it all year long. Everyone has this new year, new me mentality. So knowing that 52% of people will give up their resolution by March, I began asking myself, can people really change? You've probably asked yourself that throughout the years. Maybe someone you know did you wrong in the past. You took a chance on them again and they did you wrong again. Then with a deep sigh you said, well, people don't really change. Or maybe you were hurt by someone and the opposite happened. They were surpri- they surprised you and you said with a smile, huh, people really can change. Either way, we ask ourselves this week, can people really change? There's a lot that I want to tap into this week, but first we need to pray. So let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your blessings that you bestow upon us that we so undeservingly receive, Lord. We ask that you will lead us and guide us in this new year, Lord, that we will all grow closer to you, Father. I pray that this is the year, the year that we pray more, the year that we read our Bibles more, the year that we feel so close to you, Father. I pray this year that we will pray for our nation and for our world, Lord God, and I pray that we will turn back to you because only you have the power to save, Lord. Save us individually, save our communities, save our families, save our country, Lord. You're the only one. And Lord, I ask that whoever listens to this, wherever they may be, if they have not accepted you, Lord, that they will repent and believe upon you this day. And I pray, Lord, that you will be with us all. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now, as we have to do when we have the Apologetics Weeks, we have to start with Scripture. So let's dive right in. I want us to read about the most evident case in the Bible of someone proving that people can change. As usual, we will be reading from the ESV or English Standard Version. We'll begin our story in Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now in these verses, we are introduced to someone very important, Saul. We don't know where he's from yet or much else about him after reading these passages, but we will eventually learn that he is from a place called Tarsus, located in modern-day Turkey. We know that he was a Pharisee, a religious zealot. He would later describe himself as the Pharisees of Pharisees, the most religious and zealous of all Pharisees with more education and experience than anyone else, as he would claim. But at the time that we have read about him from this passage in Acts, the first martyr of Christianity, Stephen, is killed. The Pharisees who are killing Stephen have laid their cloaks and garments down at Saul's feet. As some commentators have suggested that maybe it was even Saul who instigated Stephen's trial. Either way, we have more to investigate when it comes to Saul. Let's continue reading as we dive into Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This next passage shows us something important too. Saul not only may have instigated Stephen's trial, but he approved of his execution. It's one thing to go to court with someone, but it's entirely another thing to approve of their execution. From here we see that Saul begins his crusade against Christians. He goes house to house and drags people out of their homes to throw them into prison for the crime of being Christian. It says that he ravaged the church. This word for ravaged, lumen. Lumineum is used only once in the entire Bible. It means to destroy, to violently mistreat. So Paul isn't just doing this passively, maybe knocking on door to door and asking people if they are there. No, Paul is kicking in doors, searching homes, violently dragging people out and publicly insulting them. He is not a nice guy. He is, in his mind, at war. And he will treat all of his enemies, the Christians, as less than human. He doesn't care about their livelihoods, their families, or their standing in society. He wants to completely ruin their lives, and he doesn't have an ounce of remorse about any of it. Now Saul's story goes quiet for the rest of chapter 8. But by the time chapter 9 rolls around, we pick his story right back up. So let's dive into Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 22. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And now we see something take place that changes Saul and the world forever. Saul, who is also known as Paul as we are told in Acts chapter 13 verse 9, is still on his hunt for Christians. He didn't care who. He just wanted them either killed or thrown in prison. Again, he didn't care. He is now on his way to Damascus, where he plans on finding more Christians to drag them back to Jerusalem in chains. But he is stopped by the resurrected and glorified Jesus and told instructions as to what to do. Meanwhile, Ananias is told to go find Saul. Now Ananias knows good and well about Saul and what he has been doing to Christians. Ananias likely knew that Saul was humiliating, killing, and imprisoning anyone who was Christian. In fact, notice that Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. Ananias has, at least from what we can gather from the text, no indication that Saul won't try to threaten his life or harm him in any way. In fact, he seems rather scared to go knowing what kind of evil Saul is capable of. And yet Jesus says something very interesting here. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine. Saul persecuted, killed, and disgraced the church. And God says, he is my instrument. He doesn't shy away from what will happen to Saul either. He tells Ananias that Saul will suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. And we know that eventually Saul slash Paul will be beheaded for his faith after surviving a shipwreck, being whipped, imprisoned, and so much more. Notice what happens next. Ananias goes to Saul, and it says immediately the scales fell from his eyes and he can see. He then got up and was immediately baptized. He didn't spare any time either, according to the account here in Acts. After some time, he went out and began proclaiming the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles, so much so that the Jews could not even argue against him that Jesus was the Christ. That didn't wipe away his past, though. 
See, there in verse 21, people are asking, is this not the guy who threw Christians in prison, who killed Christians? They knew his past. Maybe they thought this was some kind of trick by Saul to figure out who was the Christians so he could trap them and kill them or throw them into prison. But it wasn't. Saul or Paul was changed. He was not the man he was before. This guy who had hunted Christians would eventually be the guy who wrote a large portion of the New Testament of the Bible. He would be the Lord's instrument who would suffer many things to bring the gospel to the world outside of the Jewish people. Paul's testimony tells us very clearly that people can change. But the catch is this. People don't change on their own accord. People don't change if they just wake up one morning and decide they're going to be a good person that day. People don't change if they wake up on January 1st, 2024 and decide they're going to be a good person until December 31st, 2024. It doesn't work, and it won't last. People will change, however, if they are supernaturally changed by the Holy Spirit. If God is involved in changing them, then yes, they will be changed without a doubt. If God plans that you will wake up on January 1st, 2024 and give your heart to Him for all eternity, then you will be His for all eternity. The Apostle Paul, this former murderous zealot, wrote about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That old person that someone once was, that's gone if someone is in Christ. They've died. Now they are a nude person in Christ, a totally new creation. This isn't the only time that Paul attests to this either. In one of my favorite passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11, through 11, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11 just really point, proves this point. I want to just read it again so it will really sink in for us. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's words stand out so much here. I think I could spend all day talking about it. He says that they were all of these things that have been described already, all these sinful behaviors and actions, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedies, homosexuals, drunkards, abusive, exploiters, frauds, etc. He said that the Corinthians, and also us, were all of these things, but now we have been washed through baptism justified by Christ and are being set apart by God because we are new creations in him. We, if we are true Christians, we have been changed. We are new creations. As if Paul's words weren't enough, remember that his life was utterly changed. And if God can do that for the chief of sinners as Paul describes himself, then he can do that for every one of us too. Even if we believe we don't deserve it. 
Now, I know normally at this point in the episode, we would look at what apologists and theologians have had to say on this topic. And that's usually what we do here. But instead, I don't want to do that. Instead, I want to look at the testimony of people who have been changed. Again, not people who thought they could just wake up one morning and decide to be a better person. That doesn't and won't happen. But instead, people who have been supernaturally changed by God. Let's take a look at the testimony of two individuals here. America in the 1950s and 60s was a very different place than what it is today. It was a time of deep racial prejudice. We hear about how today's America is a place of inequality and injustice, and yet it doesn't hold a torch to the America of this time. Alabama Governor George Wallace infamously declared in 1963, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. He was not the only one who had felt this way in the segregated South. Many white Southerners felt that their very way of life was under attack. In particular, a young man from Mobile, Alabama, named Thomas Terrence, was in high school reading what he called white supremacist, anti-Semitic, anti-communist literature. He believed, as so many others did, that, quote, black people were inferior to whites and that desegregation by enabling intermarriage would weaken the white race. The civil rights movement, they said, was part of a communist plot, and the U.S. government had been infiltrated by communist agents. Christianity and the Constitution were being undermined, and a secret Jewish conspiracy was behind it all. End quote. It wasn't long before Tarrant would join the Ku Klux Klan, or the KKK. From there, Thomas Tarrant's life would forever change. In an article for Christianity Today, Tarrant writes, quote, Late one sweltering summer night, as my accomplice and I attempted to plant a bomb at the home of a Jewish businessman in Meridian, Mississippi, we were ambushed in a police stakeout. My partner, a young female schoolteacher, was killed at the scene. Four blasts of shotgun fire at close range left me critically wounded. Doctors told me it would be a miracle if I lived another 45 minutes. Yet God spared my life, to the astonishment of the doctors and to the dismay of the police. If anyone deserved to die, it was certainly me. I wish I could say I repented of my sins and came to a genuine faith in Jesus after God showed me mercy. But I didn't. In fact, I remained firmly committed to the ideology and conspiracy, thinking that gripped my mind. At the end of a two-day trial, I was convicted of attempted bombing and sentenced to 30 years in the Mississippi State Penitentiary one of the worst prisons in America at that time. About six months after arriving in prison, I escaped with two other inmates, intending to return to my terrorist activities. But a couple of days later, we were apprehended after a blazing gun battle with the authorities, during which one of the other inmates was killed. Had this man not relieved me from standing watch about half an hour earlier that day, I would have been the one killed. God had shown me mercy once more. Back in prison, I was confined to a 6 by 9 foot cell in the maximum security unit. Five more years were slapped onto my sentence. Apart from twice weekly showers, I was utterly alone in that cell. To keep from going crazy, I read continuously. Initially, I read more racist and anti-Semitic material that reinforced my belief. But eventually, I felt drawn to a disinterested pursuit of truth, wherever that might lead. This began with the classical philosophy and eventually led to the New Testament. 
specifically the Gospels. I didn't turn to the Bible because I wanted a better relationship with God. I had attended church and Sunday school more or less regularly until my early teens, which time I made a profession of faith and was baptized. I believed that I was saved and would go to heaven when I died. Of course, the truth was just the opposite. I had only given intellectual assent to the gospel and liked true repentance. But as I read the gospels in my prison cell, my eyes were opened in a way that went beyond simply understanding the words on the page. As the true meaning of God's word became clear, so did its relevance to my life. I had been blind to the spiritual reality all my life and was now beginning to see. As this process unfolded, my sins came to mind one after another. Conviction grew, and with it tears of repentance. I needed God's forgiveness, and I knew it came only through trusting Jesus, who had given his life to pay for my sins. One night I knelt on the concrete floor of my cell and prayed a simple prayer, confessing my sins and asking Jesus to forgive me, take over my life and do whatever he wanted to with it. The next morning, I awoke with a deep hunger for Scripture and a desire to pray and to live for God. As I read the Bible daily, a whole new world opened to me, and I couldn't get enough. Early on, God delivered me from hate, and I began to grow in love for others. Friendships developed with black inmates and others who were very different from me, including the FBI agent who had orchestrated my initial capture, as well as the Jewish lawyer who helped him. End quote. Since God had begun working on his heart and making him a new creation, Tarrant would eventually be released on parole after only serving eight years of a 35-year sentence. He was granted to go to school, and eventually he earned his doctorate's degree and would go on to serve a combined total of 21 years as vice president and president of the C.S. Lewis Institute. Again, Tarrant could not have woken up and decided to end his radically racist views on his own. Only God could have changed him, and it's clear that he did. But Tarrant's story is not the most surprising that we'll discuss today. In 1980, Samuel Doe seized the presidency of Libya in a coup. Joshua Milton Blayi was Doe's spiritual advisor during this time. Blayi served Doe in very unique ways. For instance, according to his own account, Blayi used witchcraft to help Doe win re-election. He also burned the opponent's ballots. In 1989, Libya erupted into a civil war. This civil war would rage until a ceasefire was called in 1996, with a peace lasting until 1999, when another civil war erupted, lasting until 2003. Amid these wars was Joshua Milton Blayi, better known as General Butt Naked. No, I'm not making that up. During this time, different parts of Libya were controlled by local rival militias. Reporting to the leaders of each militia were commanders, who usually had some pretty crazy names, including General Buttnaked. He was called this because he would run straight into battle, wearing nothing but his shoes, the gun slung over his shoulder, and magical talismans that he claimed made him immune to bullets. His unit, the Naked Base Commandos, also did the same thing. This particular unit was largely made up of children, some as old as nine. During his time in the conflict, he claims to have killed somewhere around 20,000 people. In his memoir, he writes about how during one particular brutal killing of a young girl that is far too graphic for me to discuss here, he heard a voice. 
He turned around to see a man standing there, and as he described him, so bright, brighter than the sun. The man said, quote, Repent and live or refuse and die. Blahi goes on to say, quote, I wanted to continue fighting, but my mind never left this person. How bright he was, how passionate his words. End quote. It wasn't long after that that he quit fighting. He left his soldiers behind and began sleeping in a church pew nearby. The pastor and the congregation gathered and prayed that God would strip Blahi of his demons and the demonic power. The very next day, Blahi went to his militia commander, handed in all of his weapons and magical charms, and told him, My new commander is Jesus Christ. Now, Blahi goes around and preaches the gospel. In 2007, he founded Journeys Against Violence, a rehabilitation group aimed at helping the boys and men who had fought in the civil wars, including those of his former unit. The group requires abstinence from drugs and alcohol, no violence, and implements a rigorous daily prayer regimen. Blahi tells everyone he can, if God can save me, God can save you too. This message that he shares is so important for us today. Again, only God could have supernaturally changed a mass-murdering violent warlord into a non-violent pastor. Change, true change, only happens when God is involved. So this year, don't say, New Year, New Me. The only new you there will be or ever be is the one that God creates. Now, if your goal this year is to grow closer to God, then stop saying that and do it. Make time and read your Bible. Make time to pray. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Even on the days when you just don't want to. Because something tells me that it's usually when you feel the God's, God the closest. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait any longer, and I pray that you will not. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. God bless.